Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. It's good to be back up here. I, last week I tried to do announcements. I couldn't even speak because my voice was gone. Uh, but I, I don't remember the last time I just took three weeks off preaching. And so it was really good for my soul and for my mind. Um, by the same time, it's just it's great to be back here uh, today. Uh, a part of our vacation, we had mentioned we got to go, to go to Hawaii, which was just such a surreal experience. Jen and I, um, we took our honeymoon in Maui 16 years ago. And to go back to Maui with four kids was just such a like contrast. We're like, whoa, this is different. Um, but like our kids are at this like sweet age where they can like just we can just travel together and we're not hauling around too many car seats or things like this. We're just kind of enjoying the season. This is so special when we get on the plane and uh, especially because of COVID, our kids haven't like don't remember ever sitting in an airplane. So they're just like asking all these questions and I'm sitting next to our two younger ones, our eight-year-old and our six-year-old. And, um, and like about halfway through the flight, we like hit some turbulence and they like grip the handlebars and look at me like, is this normal? I'm like, this is the best part of the flight. And you know, like, I'm like, yeah, it feels like Disneyland. And I'm like, yeah. And um, t- t- totally just, well then literally when the turbulence stopped, they were like sad. Like, is that it? I'm like, yeah, wait till we land. It'll be, it'll be good. But we're there having, having this amazing time and I had mentioned that like my first day there, my phone broke, which ended up being a massive blessing. But uh, I'm, we're just surrounded by this beauty, and I'm just, uh, especially when my phone broke, I was just like, okay, God, um, like let's let's start unpacking some of these things. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it, it takes getting away uh, to be able to have some perspective of what was going on. And um, and you guys, if you've been tracking with us the past couple of months, you know there's a lot going on in our church. Beautiful things that God's doing and birthing and just breathing on, and it's been incredible. But when I started to slow down and sit with that, I just realized so much of uh, how much that I was kind of carrying, I was almost unaware of. And at first, it was a little bit overwhelming. Like, oh my, there's a lot going on, and, and, and how am I going to lead this? And how, what, what happens when I go back? And like, we're, are we going to be able to do this well? And what do we need? And my mind is just racing. And, and as the days went on, I just felt that kind of slow down and just, just the graciousness of Jesus invite me into the space where I remember one morning just waking up and if you enjoy quiet times, have quiet times in Hawaii. They're just magical. <laughs> God really speaks to you. Um, but I'm just kind of wrestling through that question of just like, Lord, what, what, are, you, what are you asking? And this is very, again, this is my own personal quiet time. What are you asking of me when we get back? And I felt very clearly, does the Holy Spirit invite me into this level of simplicity? I would say, your, your job is to love people. Your staff, your church, your wife, your kids, your neighbor. That's your job description. It's to love people well. And it felt in this kind of deep calm just came over me as I was interceding and going and just like, Lord, I want to do whatever you want to do. Like, how do I do this well? How do I be a good steward? For just the Holy Spirit's response is like, I've asked you to love well. If you do that, um, whatever sort of metrics and pressure you feel 
kind of from the exterior, those things can fade away. Your job is to love well. Robert Mulholland wrote a book called Invitation to a Journey. I was reading on our time away. One of his quotes says this, reflect for a moment on what the image of Christ is. It is the image of one who gave himself totally, completely, absolutely, unconditionally for others. This is the direction in which the Spirit of God moves us towards wholeness. And as I was uh, sitting there with this, it was just kind of this moment, just feeling very centered and grounded on what my role is, not as a, so much as even as a pastor, but just as a follower of Jesus. If my end goal as a disciple of Christ is to be formed more and more into his image, then that does not happen in a more profound way than when I become, and we become, just a person of love. Because that is the ultimate description of what Jesus was. So I'm sitting with this, and I'm just like, and it just felt very um, assuring. I just felt like this kind of this, this peace and this space. I was like, oh, this is, this is what I'm called to do. This is what we're all called to do as followers of Jesus, is to mature into people of love, to give ourselves over in the same way that Christ gave himself over. And in, as we do that, we mirror the image of our creator. I was really excited, to my surprise, to come and open up to Mark chapter 12 as I started studying for this text uh, as we come to the kind of the central point of Jesus' time in Jerusalem before his crucifixion, that all comes and climaxes at this end where he gives this instruction that is at the centerpiece of all of his teachings that very much coincides with what I was sensing the Spirit speaking to me a couple weeks earlier, that we are called, invited into become people of love. And just to preface this a little bit, uh, we're going to read a passage that may arguably may be one of the most familiar passages of Scripture in, uh, in the Bible. Also, it's kind, of become, it's kind of become a cliche within our culture of like love God, love people. And cliches aren't bad. There's truth to them. But because of the, the level of normalcy we have around this idea of what it means to love God and love people, there is this sense where we can immediately hear this verse or approach this topic with this level of familiarity, of this level of dismissal, of like, oh, yeah, like we're talking about love. And, and I just wanted to push back against that a little bit, that if there's one thing we can't get enough of, it's hearing about God's love and becoming people of love ourselves. Like if there's one sermon we could preach again and again and again, if there were reruns of sermons and teachings, if there were scriptures that were highlighted or emboldened, if there was a practice of Jesus, it would be to once again return again and again to love. And for those of you who may be sitting in the room that have a, a history of following Jesus, you may have to work harder in that. It may have to be a, a greater level of sensitivity and effort on our own heart to just be open to receiving what God might have for us today. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Christian faith and what this is all about, this is a great introduction for you. But please do not read this text and enter into this sermon as something that you get to bypass, regardless of where you are in your walk with Christ. This is something for 
those of us who are brand new to the skeptic, to the person who's walked with the Lord for decades of their life. We can't get enough of this. So would you join me in prayer as we get ready to read our text in Mark 12 this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that both being recipients of your love and being called into being people of love, sometimes for us loses its appeal, its shock, and so we want to move into other things. But Lord, as we see from this teaching today, um, we don't ever get to move beyond this. We, we never graduate from love. That you call us once again and again and again back towards love. For it to not just be an aspect of our life, the Lord Jesus, to be our life. And Lord, we just confess, Lord God, that love is, is hard. It's hard to live selflessly and sacrificially. It's hard to live the way that you did. So Holy Spirit, in our confession, we ask, would you come and make us and form us into people of love? We cannot do this on our own. And God, we're asking you to open up our eyes, Lord Jesus, not just to a a, a core attribute of our faith, but to the beauty of it and to the wonder of it of what you've invited us into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, let's walk through the text this morning, and we're going to unpack it a bit, uh, and then we'll spend the last part of the sermon just uh, really kind of doing some heart work around this. Uh, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Uh, Zach did a great job last week just kind of setting it up. This time in, in Mark's gospel is Passion Week. Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and he's caught a lot of attention People are excited and slightly confused about the role that he's going to play. We're just a couple of days away from his crucifixion and resurrection. And right in, in the middle of these two major events, there is a series of just kind of shotgun teachings of Jesus that are, are um, elevated in their intensity because of the time in which is happening. You can almost imagine Jesus saying, i got a week left. I really want you to know these things. And right in the middle of this week, we talked about it's in the middle of Jewish literature. It tends to get its greatest attention and focus. We find ourselves at this moment. as one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Notice that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked, he asked him, <coughs> all of the commandments, out of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. 
So let me, uh, let me just unpack this for a little bit, what kind of what's going on here. Uh, within Jewish culture, one of the ways you would create hierarchy in a social sense is your ability to debate. So there'd be these public debates that would go on that would somehow establish your ranking as far as intelligence and righteousness. And this is going on. And so one of the teachers of the law goes and asks him the question of all questions. Of all the commands in the Torah, which is the greatest? This was a... Now, this was kind of a question that would be asked of all rabbis. How would you interpret? And the way that rabbis would interpret the 613 laws found within the Old Testament Mosaic Code is they would separate them into what was called heavy commandments and light commandments. And the heavy commandments were the ones that if you didn't do had greater punishment and ramifications. And the light commandments were still commandments, but they had lighter consequences around them. And so rabbis and scholars would kind of, kind of parcel out these different commands of which ones belong to the heavy ones, which one belong to the light. And then each rabbi had to present himself with what he believed to be the heaviest commandment. And the way this would work is all commandments didn't carry the same weight. And so if you identified the heaviest commandment or the greatest commandment, it meant that every other law had to be interpreted through the lens of that one law. Now let me just give you some examples of what rabbis uh, presented in their day when asked the question, what is the heaviest or what is the greatest commandment? Rabbi Hillel, who was about 20 years before Jesus, uh, summarized it by a version of the golden rule. He says, what you would not want to do to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the entire Torah. Everything else is interpretation. Rabbi Akiba reduced the Torah to Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. About a century after Jesus, one rabbi quoted Proverbs 3.6 as the heaviest commandment. In all your ways acknowledge God and he will make your paths straight. And Rabbi Simlei uh, his interpretation of the heaviest what would encompass all of the Torah was the righteous will live by his faith. Now, so this was not common to be asked this question. Each rabbi was expected to have the answer. How do you summarize all of godly living? But as far as we know, Jesus presented something that had never been presented before. Jesus presented the Shema, which would not have been new, and at the same time, provide, represented Leviticus 19 of loving your neighbor. And if you notice, he calls them a command. Singular. And in doing that, Jesus interweaves loving God and loving people as the ultimate weight of how everything else in your relationship with God and your life should be lived out. And so there's a reason why this text has become so famous, because it's it's, you can't get around it. What's the greatest commandment? It's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. And those two things are intertwined. And for Jesus, this is his core teaching. This is what it looks to live life in the kingdom. And by doing this, he does something. He, he avoids the danger of mysticism which results in a kind of a detached or disembodied love of God. Like you can love God and be a hermit and a monk and tucked away as long as you don't have to deal with those, those people. Um, which the older I get, the more I kind of get that one. I'm like, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. It's really easy to love God when there's like, there's no one around. But it also avoids the danger of humanism, which acts towards humanity without reference for God. 
And so there is these, this danger that we want to gravitate towards a love of God that is free from the burden of people, or we want to gravitate towards a love of people that's free from reverence for God. And Jesus says, no, 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 if you're a follower of me, if you're my disciple, everything falls underneath this umbrella. And so if you, if you are, and so again, just a little, little tip for you as you study the Bible, if you're ever wondering and you come across something a peculiar, a decision that you're having, a verse that you come across, you're like, well, how important is this? How do I do this? Put it underneath what Jesus said. This is a great thing. Does it produce and promote a deep love for God and love for neighbor in a coinciding kind of way? And if it doesn't, then, then you need to adjust your interpretation of that thing to make sure it fits in that. So Jesus goes on. In Luke's gospel, uh, he goes on, the, the scribe says, well, then tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus goes on and tells the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, which was not what he was expecting. In Mark's gospel, he doesn't tell the story of the Good Samaritan, at least it's not recorded here. Rather, he starts addressing a specific topic or issue. A couple of verses down, verse 38, says, as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets, but they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. He, uh, just, just to pause real quick on this critique of the scribes. Up to this point, other than that one scribe who asked him about the loving God and loving people, all the other scribes have kind of been seen in kind of this negative light. And Jesus kind of reveals why. Because you walk around with these, these long robes. And he was referring to their, their prayer shawls, which would have called talits. And talits were these kind of white, long robes, very noticeable because they were so pure and so white versus kind of the more dull, um, dull-colored robes that Jews would have worn that day. And they were long, they had tassels on either end, they'd walk in. And say, you, you walk around and, and kind of the custom was if you saw uh, a, scholar, or a, a scribe, a rabbi, someone wearing these prayer shawls and you were in the market, whatever you're doing, you stopped and stood at attention and you gave them respect. And so as they would walk throughout the market in these little towns, no matter what you were doing, you were to stop what you were doing and you were to stand and give respect to this very religious person walking their way. And when they went into the synagogue, kind of the community center of the day, they were reserved the special seats that uh, were in the very front so that everyone could see them as they kind of sat in the round. And he says that when they pray, they pray these lengthy prayers. And so their spirituality, their relationship with God was devout but noticeable. And he says something really interesting. He says, somewhere in the midst of all of that energy and activity of making sure you're recognized for your devotion for God, you have devoured widows. What's that about? Well, interestingly enough, it was the role of these religious people, whether from the synagogue or the temple, to gather the, the alms, the giving, and to make sure that they took care of widows. Why? Well, because widows in that culture had no way of making income. 
They were completely at the mercy of the community around them. And that if they didn't have uh, a family that was able to sustain them, it was the job of the religious community to do that. And so widows in that day had a massive economical problem. And so Jesus looks at these people who have exerted so much energy in making sure that their spirituality is noticed, their honor is given, their seats are preserved, and all the while some of the people they passed by on the streets were the women who desperately just wanted to make ends meet. And Jesus gives them a, a rebuke. He says, you'll, you'll be punished for this. He then goes on, verse 41, he says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put. So keep in mind, this is all happening in the temple. All these debates, all these talks. Jesus sat down the opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had to live on. And in this moment where Jesus is critiquing kind of the, the religious elites of the day, he notices the very one who are being crushed and persecuted because of their lack of attention. He notices a widow in the temple. <coughs> and, he's just, and he's watching her. He's opposite of the treasury. Now, the way the temple worked is that on kind of the outer level where women were still allowed to come in, there would be 12 ram's horns set throughout the, the outer courts. And each one of these ram's horns was where you could go and put your money. And if it was a specific offering, well, what happened is you'd have to present it to a priest, and the priest would inspect the offering that you were given and would tell you where to go and put that. And so then they would go, and because of the sound of the coins with the hardened kind of horn, uh, you would be able to hear it as well. And so it, it would, it's not like Jesus was like using kind of his like omniscience to know exactly how much he gave. He's probably just watching. Probably watching a priest inspect. The, it, we, it translates like sense, but it was the lowest currency available of the day. Just these two coins. You can imagine Jesus just watching this woman come into the court, going through the humiliation of her offering being inspected, Maybe even we can kind of imagine, maybe even scoffed at. And he goes and watches her put it in. And he calls his disciples to himself. And he says, this, this is what catches my attention. Not the, not the long prayer robes, not the best seats in the synagogue, not the lengthy prayers. And what he does right here, it's so brilliant. As he's critiquing the lack of care that the religious elites were bringing, he decides to, he sees a widow and points out and says, this is the hero. And I think, sadly, whenever I've heard this taught, it normally comes with this thing of like, we should give more. 
Look at how much she gave. But Jesus, it's doing more than talking about how much she gave. She's saying, this is it. And what everyone thinks is it, it's not it. That's not what we want. And there's this beautiful thing by flipping things on, on their head. And keep in mind, contextually, this is all attached to what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And he takes the people everyone would assume get it and says they're missing it. But this widow, the person that has nothing and nobody, being able to support her in the way she did, takes all that she has and she just trusts God with it. She gets what it means to love God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She gets what it means to love her neighbor. You know why? Because those offerings were being given over to other people in need. So this widow who has nothing says, I'm going to take the little that I have and make sure other people are cared for. I mean, it just flips the cultural norms on the head. It's brilliant and scandalous and radical what Jesus is presenting. And so here's what I would like for us to wrestle with today. Here's my, here's my thesis. It is not possible to love God adequately without the love of neighbor. And it is not possible to love neighbor adequately without the love of God. This seems to be what's happening here at the end of Mark 12, is these two ideas have to be brought together. And that Jesus is not satisfied with one or the other. And so I kind of want to take some time to to kind of work through these two different thoughts. What does it mean to love God connected to our love of neighbor? And what does it mean to love our neighbor in connection to our love of God and God's love for us? The first one is probably the one that's the most glaring, right? You cannot love God adequately without love of neighbor. And this whole critique of how they treated widows, this is not a New Testament thing. You can read... Isaiah 10.2, Amos 2, Micah 3, throughout the prophets, God's judgment on Israel is attached to their mistreatment of, oppre- of oppressed people, largely those who would have been widowed or orphaned. Isaiah 10.1 through 2 says this, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Jesus, or Yahweh in the Old Testament through the prophets is looking at Israel and says, this is why you have to get this. It's interesting because we, we remember that Mark is writing to a church in Rome. Josephus, is, who was a historian around, a Jewish historian around the time um, of when the New Testament was written, actually tells a story of a, a Jewish um, con artist uh, kicked out of Jerusalem who makes his way to Rome and he starts to pretend that he's a scholar or a scribe, that he interprets the Torah. And one of the things that Josephus records is that he goes and finds a wealthy Roman widow and convinces her that she should give over her entire estate to the temple. 
And she does. She thinks this is what would be serving to God. And once he takes all of the funds from selling the estate, he leaves and doesn't return any of it to the temple. And so Josephus has in his article something that, or in his writings that happened within Rome. And so you can imagine Mark's audience reading about Jesus' care for the widow, and they have an example of how, how this was happening in their day. That these women who, who were very vulnerable were then being taken advantage of. This wasn't just an Old Testament thing. James, in his gospel, says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I think that, as a church, I I just wanted to say, it it is an honor to belong to a community who takes this seriously. I have watched this church care for orphans. I have watched this church care for widows. I literally got a text this week of a a woman who belongs to our community because of her disability, cannot attend physically, but watches each week, whose husband passed away a couple months ago. And while I was on vacation, this is what my doing, I got back to pictures from this family because because of this church buying a wheelchair that they desperately needed. Caring for a widow in a very tangible way. I mean, we're here this morning showing pictures of a family who've lost a father. Very well needed. So I, I, don't, I don't bring this to you guys with like a heavy hand. I'm just saying it is an honor to be a part of this kind of community who takes this very seriously. Henry Nouwen says, following Jesus means to dare to move out of ourselves and to slowly let go of building ourself. It means to be guided by the other who draws us into an entirely new way of being. Jesus calls us to continue his mission of revealing the perfect love of God in this world. Robert Mulholland in his book says this, if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. Are you more loving, more compassionate, more patient, more understanding, more caring, more giving, more forgiving than you were a year ago? If you cannot answer these questions in the affirmative, and especially if others cannot answer them in the affirmative about you, then you need to examine carefully the nature of your spiritual life and growth. So I know for us, we've talked a little about, because of the context, this idea of widows, and I think in our, in our day and age, it's easy to segment the love of neighbor to uh, versions of extreme brokenness, extreme need. But I also wanted to bring before you today is that your neighbor also is the person who's closest to you and you're probably the most real and raw with. That's your neighbor. It's the person who might rub you the wrong way and knows how to get on your nerves and maybe is just out to get you. How do you, how do you love them? How do you, how do you love your neighbor in, in such a way that is connected to your love of God? Like how, and again, and the reason I bring that up is I think sometimes it's the people that are close to us, whether it's a roommate, a, spouse, your kids, your parents, um, that we tend to, we have the freedom to be human with. We get to let our guard down and 
That feels good. But I think as a result of that, sometimes the people closest to us get our least amount of effort to love. And so if I could just encourage you this morning, whoever that is for you, if, if there's someone who has not been getting the greatest amount of your intention, the greatest amount of your care and thoughtfulness, what, what would it look like this week that as an act of your worship, your love for God, is that you would actually find ways to, to let, let love come into those relationships in a new and profound way. But this kind of leads to the second point of the thesis, is it's actually not possible to love your neighbor adequately without the love of God. And many of you guys have run into this. Like love in our culture at its best, I'm talking about a love apart from God, is either incredibly apathetic and trivial, and like, oh yeah, we love them. But when it gets close, it becomes highly transactional. Like, I will love as long as it benefits me. I will love as, I, as long as I feel like it's recognized. That's the best our culture can do because all we know, which is why it's impossible to love our neighbor adequately without the love of God because God doesn't love like that. God loved first. God loved sacrificially. God loved with an unlimited amount of love and that has the ability that can come and change us. It's one of the most interesting, interesting things for me that I found out this week as I was studying this passage that I've studied a hundred times. James R. Edwards, who's a scholar commenting, commenting on this passage, says this, God lays rightful claim to every facet of human personality. Is this on your screen? Okay. Heart, your emotions. Soul, your spirit. Mind, your intelligence. Strength, your will. Each of the four commandments is prefaced by the Greek preposition X, meaning from the source of, rather than by the means of. Thus, we are commanded to love God not simply with our whole heart, listen to this, but from our heart. It's like, this messed me up this week. And it made everything in this passage click. Like, oh, there's an entire group of people who believe they can love God with their heart, with their strength, with their mind, with their soul, but they have no ability how to love God from their heart and from their mind. The deep-rootedness of that love has not taken shape, so all they can do is offer items and resources and morality and activity, but there's something that hasn't been birthed inside of them. So as I'm reading this, all of a sudden I'm realizing, like, this is the problem. We come in in our relationship to God or our relationship to our neighbor. We think the best that we can do is offer them something rather than realizing that it has to come from something. If we haven't been transformed by the love of God, the very best you can do is to offer something not from somewhere. And there's a radical difference. And we all know it. We know when someone is just giving us something and we know when it comes from someone from within and the greatest commandment is not giving you a to-do list he's wanting your heart the greatest commandment is you have to love god from 
your heart, from your mind, from your soul, from your strength, from the depths of your being, you must offer yourself in love to God and to your neighbor. Well, how do you do that if you don't have something to draw from? Which means that we are desperately in need. Our greatest desperation must be not what we contribute, but what we receive. We need to have the Spirit of God deposit within us the reality of the gospel that we have been so loved by God that all of a sudden our offering of our heart and our mind and our strength and the love of our neighbors no longer becomes this thing that we're keeping a list of. I hope you saw that. I hope you say thank you. I hope that you love me back in the same way. That all gets washed away because I'm like, it's just coming out of me. I can't. I don't know any other way. And we move from transactional love to transformational love when we understand that we have been called to love God from our strength, from our heart, from our soul, from our mind. Doesn't it make sense now why Jesus' critique of the scholar and the scribes and the teachers of the law says, listen, you're, you're devoted. You're doing like, externally the right things, he said, but you, you've actually missed it. And then he goes and he finds this widow. It's so beautiful. And he draws his disciples in and says, she gets it. Why in the world would you give over to God everything you have to live on unless you actually didn't lose anything? She got it. And the best, brightest teachers of the law were still trying to accumulate some sort of external, visible way of living that would make people, other people see that they're righteous and causes. No, no. I want something deeper. Stevie this week showed me a, posted a, a quote from Brendan Manning, really great author. He says, if I'm not in touch with my own belovedness, then I cannot touch the sacredness in others. If we're not aware of that space, of the love of God, both receiving and expressing, then we'll fall short in our ability to love neighbors. Not, and, and again, and God's not condemning our attempts, but he's saying it's, he wants to redirect our source. Um, in the email that was sent out, uh, during second service last week when I was sitting over there, I got, I got one of those text messages you just, you just hate getting. Um, a friend of mine and many of yours here named Russell Brownlee passed away. Um, just a little bit older than myself. Wife, two kids, they come to our church. I was in Costa Rica and was training kind of underwater hold, breath holds for diving and don't know all the details but it was couldn't have just been more untimely and tragic and just like this weight and um, I bring that up for two reasons one is um, in the email there's there's an opportunity to to bless Brianna and the kids there's a GoFundMe set up for them if you feel called to give towards them please do the other reason I bring up that story is on Friday, Jen and I were sitting with Brianna. 
and I was studying for this passage, and I was, I was thinking a lot about widows, and I was, was like, oh, I'm sitting with a widow, and she was talking. And as she was talking in the midst of her tears and her grief, and she, she kept coming back to like love and trust of God and the love for her husband, the love for um, people, even in the midst of going through this, who said some really hurtful things to her. And she would choose love again and again. I remember just being like, oh, I have like a living, I have a living picture of what Jesus saw 2,000 years ago. Of a friend of ours, now walking through the unthinkable, who just comes to the end of herself and just says, I have nowhere else to go but then to trust God. And in, in, her, in her pain, and they like just, she, the way she just choose love of her neighbor, love of people who've done stupid things and said stupid things, she would just choose love. And I remember just being like, God, thank you for the sacredness of that moment to literally watch um, a hero of the faith. And I think it was, a, it was an invitation to all of us as a community, as a church, not to go and present this new topic or new subject, but just to be like, we can't ever leave love. This is it. The rest of our days, that we would come back and that we would remember that we have been called to love God from our hearts, from our mind and our strength and our soul, to out of that love that has been poured into us, our awareness of our belovedness, that then we can come around those around us and we can choose love. And so very simply today, I think, church, if I could ask you, is... Um, how, how do we take this call and translate this into our life? Because the, the tragedy of this moment is if we heard um, a teaching or felt emotional for a moment and then we went and chose to live a life apart from love. And so I want us just to take a moment. Worship team, you guys can come up here. Um... <coughs> And I wanted, I've just been asking a question, what, Lord, what does that look like for us? And if you guys are, have been studying for the Bible, you know that when Jesus talked about loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he didn't make up those words. He was drawing from the most famous of all of Jewish scripture, uh, the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it calls that nation to love God with their heart and their soul and their mind. And Jesus then goes and adds strength. But as the Shema keeps going, I want to read it to you. So this, is, this is the text Jesus is drawing from. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. If you visit a Jewish home today, interestingly enough, the home we were with, Brianna's Jewish home, 
on their door frames, you will see a, a small little box made of stone or wood. And inside that box is the Shema rolled up in a scroll. And Orthodox Jews actually don't have it on their front door, but every single door in their house. And when this was written, they would literally tie things on their wrists and they would tie a box with the Shema on their forehead. They would talk about it when they got up in the morning. They would talk about it when they went to bed at night. They would talk about it with their children. They would plant it on their heart. It, was, it wasn't like a, a Sabbath, a Shabbat thing. It wasn't like a Sunday thing. It was like every single day. You can't go more than a few feet or a few moments without thinking about the Shema. And so Jesus takes the Shema, and what he does is he uses it to point to himself. This is it. And so I think for us, maybe the application today is that love has to transition from something that we're taught about and it has to become something like the Shema becomes a part of our daily living. So I just kind of took some notes. What does it mean to be on your heart? Maybe, and these are all just suggestions, maybe for you start each morning sitting in God's presence, asking Him to speak over you how much He loves you. Just try it. First thing you do this morning before you turn on your phone, before you, you know, before you go turn on coffee, well, maybe you can turn on coffee. Okay, I'm not going to be all pharisaical. But first thing you do, before you go and read your Lectio and check a box, and before, just sit and just say, God, would you just, would you speak to me? Would you remind me how much you love me? And like, if you started every day with your own belovedness from God, and out of that place, you can start to ask the question, what does it look like for me to love you today, God? What does it look like for me to love my neighbor today? It says to impress it on your children. I just wrote this down. I, again, I'm not doing this, okay? So don't like be like, wow, he's so, I'm not. But I was like, well, what about instead of a chore chart, what if you made like a love chart? And just for your kids, you know, along with making their bed or doing the dishes or doing their homework, you said like, find a way to love your sibling. Like, we, we actually systematically trained our children towards love. It says to talk about it when you're at home sitting down, when you're walking, when you go to bed, when you wake up. The thing I wrote down is like, what, what if you made your goal on social media to talk about things that point you towards the love of God or the love of others? When it says to tie them as symbols, which would have been personal and public reminders, maybe for you to like write, write something on your mirror when you're getting ready in the morning. Put an alert on your phone. Make it a screensaver on your, on your laptop or your device. I mean, I, the, just that the love of God and neighbor just becomes something that I can't not see it. It says to write them over the door frames and over your gates. Maybe you buy an art piece or commission an art piece that points you and your roommates or your family and points you towards love. Maybe you make it the screensaver that pops up. I, I, again, I'm, I know these are just kind of cheesy examples, but I'm just thinking like for the Jews, for them loving God was something so ingrained culturally to them. I think this is kind of where we miss it. Like you might be sitting here theologically and be like, yeah, I, cool, I agree with that. We should, we should probably love God and love people. It sounds good. But my question today is like, 
Could we get creative and imaginative of what does it mean to actually incorporate that into our day to day? So I'm just going to go ahead and pray. And then we're going to worship. And I'm just going to ask that the Lord, while we're worshiping, that maybe God would just give you ideas for your own life and your context and your life stage. What does it look like for you to start making the love of your neighbor that flows out of the love from God that you receive because of your love from him that just becomes just the, the center of gravity in your life? So Jesus, we thank you for today. Lord, I'm, I'm sorry when I've made things more complicated than they've needed to be, when you've just, you've made it very simple. It's profound, but simple. And Lord, we just confess today, we are, we are none of us are masters of loving you and loving others. We are students. So Holy Spirit, we also recognize we can't do this ourselves. This has to be a result of you, Holy Spirit, forming us. Lord, we also recognize that we will never be able to love you or other people until we first realize you've loved us. So if there's someone here this morning who's never had their heart awakened by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they are loved, they are forgiven, they are redeemed, they are adopted into a new family. God, I pray that your love would just wash over them, Lord God, and their life would never be the same. Lord, I pray that for the person who's never experienced that, and I pray for the person who's been to a thousand church gatherings. Lord, I pray that your love would sweep over us this morning and that it would just one step closer. It would move us towards your image, which ultimately is the one who gives himself in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.